Turn your mess into a message. Chris Wilkins joins us to talk about growing up as a tough guy, hiding abuse, checking out, and running away from the truth. He talks about connecting, getting honest and direct, and trying to help those without resources through programs like his, Heal the Hurt. Enjoy. Welcome to the Illuminate Recovery Podcast. We shed light on mental health issues, mental illness, and addiction recovery. Ways to cope, manage, and inspire. Beyond the self-care we will discuss, you may need the help of a licensed professional. My name is Kurt Neider. I'm a husband, father, entrepreneur, a handyman, and a student of life. I avoid conflict, I deflect with humor, and I'm fascinated by the human experience. And I'm Shelly Mangum. I am a clinical mental health counselor, and my favorite role of all times is grandma. I am a seeker of truth, and I feel like life should be approached with tremendous curiosity. I ask the dumb questions. I fill in the gaps. The Illuminate Recovery Podcast is brought to you by Illuminate Billing Advocates. Make billing and collection simple with leader in substance abuse and mental health billing services. Verification and analysis of benefits, pre-authorizations, utilization management, accurate claim submission and management, denial and appeal management, and industry-leading reporting. Improve your practice's cash flow and your ability to help your clients with Illuminate Billing Advocates. Today, um, Kurt and I are um, excited to talk with Chris Wilkins. Chris is an LCSW. He is also the founder at Heal the Hurt in Provo, Utah. Um, Heal the Hurt is a nonprofit providing scholarships to help people access treatment services that they can't afford but desperately need. He is also the director um, at Hobble Creek Behavioral Health. Chris, thanks so much for taking time out of your day to come and visit with us and share your experience. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. These are these are connections that I love and value very much. So thanks for taking time to to let me get to know you guys. Um, so let's just start out letting our audience kind of get an idea of who you are, where you come from and what your background is. So if maybe you could just give us kind of a history there, that'll give us a starting point. Yeah, absolutely. So I am originally from Arizona. Um, I am all I'm a Sun Devil. Uh, I'm a, I'm in Utah now, and so so with NBA playoffs going on, uh, people keep asking me if I'm going to cheer Jazz or Suns. Um, but uh, love Arizona, love the desert. Um, but came up to Utah when I was 12. Um, family moved up here, and so I've kind of been a back and forth transplant uh, between here and in the Phoenix Valley. Um, when I was 11 and 13, experienced some abuse from a close friend, a family friend um, who lived outside of the home. But um, um, that was pretty shocking. That created a lot of distress for me. Um, I mean, I'm the oldest child, oldest of six in my family and grew up with, I know a lot of people will say this, but I grew up with the best parents. The, the greatest scenario that I possibly could have imagined. Um, really blessed, really, really well taken care of. Um, two parents who who literally sacrificed everything for us, for their children. And something in me at 11, I think, I think probably equal parts fear and embarrassment 
and worry about being perceived as weak convinced me to not say anything when when I was abused. Um, and in both of those scenarios, it was the same person. And in both of those scenarios, <clears throat> um, what would typically happen is I was I would wake up and something not okay was happening. And I was paralyzed, was frozen. I didn't know what to do, didn't know how to, to make myself safe. And um, so, yeah, I buried that. And at 14, when given the opportunity, so let me back up for a second. Um, the family, the family friend had, had, uh, you know, this abuse first took place in Arizona and then we moved to Utah and the family friend had come to visit. And, um, so at 14 still new, still in a, a fairly new, um, at least it felt new new state, new schools, and those kinds of things. I hadn't really found my group yet, my friend group yet. Um, a buddy of mine at school, kid who I thought was just really cool, um, popular, um, everybody liked him. Uh, walking past him in the hallway, he, he kind of he nudged me and said, hold out your hand. And, and so I did, and he dropped a couple of pills into my hand and said, take these. And it was under his breath. I knew exactly the situation. I didn't know what the pills were, but I knew what was going on. And I wanted his acceptance. I wanted to be cool. Um, you know, at 14 in junior high, we are figuring ourselves out. We, we often might feel lost. We often might feel alone. And we want to fit in. We want to be cool. And um, so I took these pills, went and sat in a U.S. history class and that felt incredible. That felt amazing. Not only emotionally and socially did I feel like I was winning, but physically, uh, emotionally, physiologically, that, that was a high. That felt, that was something different. That felt really good. And that began my uh, love for being intoxicated. That began my love for checking out, for numbing myself. And something that we talk about a lot in, in the recovery world, in therapy, is, is that every single action in this world is doing one of two things. Either seeking pleasure and or avoiding pain. And so for me, at 14 years old, those pills did both. I felt really good and no longer was I thinking about the abuse. No, also, no longer was I thinking about fitting in. No longer was I worrying about any other stressor that was in my life at age 14. So that was kind of a miracle in my, to, to me, in my mind. This was this really cool thing. I began a secretive, uh, kind, of a, kind of a hidden life. Um, I, I learned how to hide that very well, um, whether it was pills, marijuana, alcohol, um, I learned how to get really sneaky with it and get away with it. Part of that lifestyle um, included theft, whether it was um, uh, from individuals who left their belongings behind somewhere, maybe on the snowboard bus um, or the ski bus, or it was in shop, shopping centers, um, stores, or malls. Um, I became pretty savvy at that and actually got uh, arrested when I was 16 um, 
stealing something from a store and thought I was really clever, thought that I was really smart and really sneaky. And at 16, we, we, we ruled the world, right? <laughs> um, and my wording, I was trying to hide something. I wasn't given the full truth. Um, and, and something with my wording or the way I said something led the officer to, to dig a little deeper. And um, it was a rough time. I had to go home and share with my parents what had happened. And we had long talks. And uh, throughout my life, I had many opportunities to, to I'll, I'll just kind of throw up some air quotes and, and confess. You know, I had many opportunities to say, this is what's going on. This is why it's happening. I'm not okay. I need some help. I could never do that for those same reasons that I mentioned before. I never wanted to devastate my parents. These were, um, this person was a family friend. It would have devastated everybody. It would have wrecked those relationships in my mind. And so as a codependent martyr, I, I guess I decided to, to just fall on that sword and, and deal with it and um, um, keep everybody else from hurting. And my technique, my method for that was continuing to drink, continuing to check out. Um, I discovered along the way, I discovered girls. I discovered uh, deceit, being deceptive, uh, adrenaline. I very much enjoyed getting away with things and, and being really sneaky. And so um, that led to a lot of chaos and contention and struggle and, and pain uh, that impacted. Uh, I played some sports in high school and that impacted my my effort there that impacted my performance there it impacted relationships with coaches and um, I think in some ways I came off as having an attitude when in all reality there was a lot of the other stuff under the surface that I that I hid um, so fast forward to um, I don't know after a while changing changing my ways or not having a supplier or um, wanting to change, wanting to commit to be bitter or whatever, um, would have some periods of, of doing really well and, um, and not really acting out, not struggling with the substance or behavior and, um, ended up getting married, um, had a child and life was good. And I found myself back in the thick of checking out and numbing out. And, um, that created a lot of tension, jeopardized the marriage. Um, ended up that uh, she had some addiction issues too that resurfaced. And so here we have this child um, born to two addicts, born to two people with struggle, two people with trauma, significant trauma. Um, um, and we ended up, uh, we ended up divorcing and co-parenting. So um, that became a, that became a, something, something of a maybe opportunity to learn how to, how to live outside of myself better. Um, being a father is the most important thing in my world, in my life. Um, and it's been, and it's been ever since she was born. And sometimes that comes at the expense of other important things in my life. Um, but I, 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 th I guess once you become a parent, uh, at least for me, once I became a parent, it was like the world changed. Um, when that happened, there was a desire to live differently, more motivation to, to be well, to be healthy, 
um, a couple of years prior to her being born, um, uh, this this person I'd married before had said, "What happened? Something we were talking one night. What happened? Something happened to you?" And I said, "No, nothing. Everything's good." And she persisted, um, really, really perceptive that way. And she persisted and said, "No, like you just like you tell me. You can tell me what happened." And so I proceeded to tell her what happened when I was eleven and thirteen. And, she is said, this the to... first? Is this the first time you've told another person? First time I'd ever told anybody. Yeah, yeah. See, I jump around. I jumped around a bit, um, but uh, yeah, first time I told anybody. And and she said, um, in fact, we were in my parents' driveway, and she said, "We got to go inside. We got to tell them." And I said, "No, no, we don't. They don't need to know. Um, I'm over it. I've forgiven. I've moved on. It doesn't affect me anymore." And she's like, "That's that's crap. Let's go." And. Uh, Sure enough, went in there and was kind of bore my soul. I can imagine that my parents um, were devastated and shocked, and maybe because of because of my relationship with my parents today, thinking back, I can only imagine a sense of relief that they must have felt for understanding why. Why from, from that early age was there this struggle? Why were all those things happening? Why was my personality the way that it was? Why did I choose the things that I did? I can only imagine now that there was a, a, a little ounce of that relief because now they got it, now they understood. It didn't erase the past, it didn't take away that pain, but maybe being able to, to know why, or that there was a reason, there was a cause, maybe brought some relief. Um, there was a, there was an, I'm gonna jump to the, to the future for a second. Um, on this timeline, there was a moment uh, later on in life where um, I'd, I'd relapsed, I'd, I'd gone back into living a, a way that wasn't, I wasn't too proud of and got into some trouble and um, had to reconcile that and, and get some get some treatment of my own and and everything and a couple of years after that there was a celebration um things were good i'll say it that way uh, kind of vaguely things were going really well and my mom my mom and dad got to attend a, a little ceremony for me and i remember my mother hugging me and, and whispering in my ear um, i'm so proud of you i wish that back then amidst all that struggle, I could have seen forward to today. And that's really powerful for me and for our family. Because in the midst of struggle, I think we are paralyzed so often, I think we get stuck in that sorrow, I think so often we get stuck in, in the pain rather than considering that maybe this is temporary. Maybe you know, that phrase, this too shall pass, maybe, maybe on some level, this will all make sense someday. And we'll be able to look back and, and have some understanding. So anyway, um, yeah, a couple of times in my life, I'll, I'll go back a couple of times in my life. I've, I've done really well, um, kind of get complacent, kind of think, oh, everything's I got this. Everything's good. Um, I'm on fire and ego comes in or um, uh, maybe not feeling like I need to continue doing my own work. And sure enough, that 
those demons creep back in. Those struggles, they rear, they rear their ugly heads. And so that happened a couple of times in my life. That has happened a couple of times in my life. Um, and so in my practice now, one of the things that's incredibly important has become a, a regular for my people is this, this idea of do your dailies that it doesn't matter to me how much time somebody has sober. Um, I'm more concerned with where their heart is. I'm more concerned with what their recovery looks like. And a lot of times people will use recovery and sobriety synonymously, and then it means the same thing. And there are some people in the rooms or, or people who participate in, whether it's Alcoholics Anonymous or any other anonymous or trauma recovery healing, where the idea of sobriety more has to do with, can you provide a clean urine sample? You know, do you have drugs in your system right now is your sobriety, whereas recovery has more to do with the way we see ourselves, the way we see others, um, our humility, our level of love and compassion and service to others. So to me, to me, I really care about recovery. And that, does, that doesn't justify if we continue to do the things that led us to destruction. You know, I can't do so much good and justify the bad. That doesn't work that way. Um, but for so long, I personally banked my value on how literally how many days I went without a drink or how many days I went without a, a pill, how many days I went without air duster, how many days I went without the use of um, uh, gambling or pornography or uh, women or some shopping retail therapy became a real that became a real uh, struggle especially as an adult that was a coping mechanism that i thought well it's not a drug it's not a chemical i'm not hurting anybody but i'd spend an entire paycheck on stuff i didn't need or clothing or baseball games um you know when my when my lifestyle was not such when my budget was not such that that was okay so the idea of, of uh, not living our values, not living our priorities, that, um, that's something that we focus a lot on as well, what our individual values are. And if we're in recovery, that doesn't mean we're perfect. It doesn't mean we never mess up, we never struggle, but it means that, that either once I recognize that there's a struggle or somebody else grabs me and says, Chris, what, like, what are you doing? This isn't you. This isn't what you teach. And there's a level of humility and acceptance. I could go, oh, wow, I didn't even see it. I didn't even notice that happening. Like, thanks so much for raising my awareness. Thanks, thanks for saying something about it. Because I think as humans, sometimes we see people backing up toward a cliff and they don't know it. They don't see that it's there. And we just kind of, we don't want to hurt them and offend them. We don't want them to get mad at us. And so we just watch them do it. We watch them teeter and eventually fall off that cliff. And if they live, if they survive it, they might ask the question like, why don't you say anything? Like, why don't you help me? Why don't you save me from myself? You know, there was this, there was this treacherous thing in my path and you didn't do anything about it. And so now as a human and as a therapist and, and any other role that I play, I'm like probably yelling louder than I need to. Like, hey, there's a cliff over there. We're like, what are you doing? 
because I there was a long there was a long part of my life where I was the the bystander. I would just look on as somebody would would fall into into that kind of a struggle, um, and I'd rather not I'd rather not risk that by inaction anymore. Well, um, you bring up I, I want to just jump in there is because I'm I'm hearing this theme right as you talked about your you know, being abused and waking up in the middle of the night, being abused and being frozen. There's a lot of people that can't, that can't put words to what happened. You know, I've talked to people who have said, this happened to me, this trauma happened to me. And, and it's like, they're, they, they can't make sense of it. And when you give them the words, like you just did of, I was frozen, I couldn't move. I didn't know what to do with this. That, that it starts to make sense of, Oh, I didn't, they didn't give me a choice, right? Because we so often, the only thing we can control is us. So if it's our fault, if we made the, the problem and the error, then we can do something about it. And so we own it, right? Just like you did. You have to own it. You have to carry this, this, uh, this heavy load, because if you don't, it's going to mess up your family and it's going to mess up relationships. And, and, you know, and I'm sure that at that young age, you also had lots of thoughts about, I'm messed up. This must happen to me because I'm messed up and, you know, something's wrong with me. And so I, you know, I don't want anybody to see that. So I can't talk about it. Exactly. Especially in a, in a culture that, uh, or a community that I was raised in that, that, um, you know, if we mess up, there's, there's badness to that. And I think Brene Brown talks about it the best, in my opinion, um, the difference between guilt and shame. Guilt is good. It tells us we have a conscience um, we're not sociopaths, you know, we, we recognize we messed up, whereas the shame is we are messed up, we are bad, and that it's our existence. And a lot of our work is around that, recognizing that we make mistakes, we're human. Mm-hmm. And and there is no shame in our humanness, there is no shame in the mistake. Um, but the invitation is with love and with compassion, let's do something about it. How can we halt the cycle? How can we get out of this loop? of destruction. And that's something I've had to apply in my own life and, and come up with kind of my protocol for what keeps me safe, what keeps me healthy, what keeps me moving in the right direction. Um, and I try to give that or, or um, encourage my clients or my people to, to do something similar, not my style, not my exact dailies, but what is theirs? What's realistic for them according to their schedule, um, their interests, um, their, level of rebelliousness or resistance to things Um, because this it's it's hard work and it's uncomfortable but if there's a willingness then i i very much believe we can break so many bad habits we can overcome so many traumas and problems and distresses um, that people can truly be happy and and feel joy so yeah i look at the analogy of um, um like the princess and the pea maybe and we all have a, a tiny little pea that's down there and we can throw as many mattresses on top and I'm totally distorting the story, um, but we can throw as many mattresses between ourselves and the pea, but we're still gonna feel it. It's still gonna be felt until we, we rip off all of those, those layers and get to it and figure out what it is and, and deal with it properly. You know. Yeah. Well, and it's so powerful to normalize it freezing in that kind of a situation is a normal human response, right? It's a normal human response, but we somehow think we're flawed because we didn't do anything or say anything, but we don't realize we couldn't. 
right? You couldn't, people can't in those situations, sometimes they can't. And recognizing that's a human experience allows them to maybe take a breath and go, oh, all this shame that I put on myself isn't real. Like I couldn't have, I didn't have the power to do anything about that anyway. So I love the way you talk about that because I think it is super freeing for people. Yeah, I think it's I think it's important for us to recognize and not wallow in it. Let's not just like commiserate and be um, be weak in always being in pain. But but there's a, a lot of gray area or a lot of middle ground between I'm perfect or I'm awful. You know, there's so much middle ground there. And I think we I think we probably I don't know the the term for it, but we just probably go back and forth on some level of some days. Wow, I feel I feel really good. I'm loving it. You know, life is great. And, you know, I might stub my toe every now and again, but but overall things are awesome. And then there are probably moments where we're like, why me? Like, what did I do? Why do I feel like I can never catch a break? And and we need to normalize that or or naturalize that. I, I like to I like to put hum- some humanize. Yes, I love it. You know, so I kind of think of normal as reasonably healthy, whereas natural or human, it's like a typical thing. Hey, this comes up, this happens. We don't want it to be, we don't want to consider it normal and healthy and forever, but let's acknowledge that this is a thing. And then, then I think we're better prepared to do something better prepared and equipped to do something about it. So. Yeah, I agree. And uh, one other comment that you made too, um, is that as a you know as a 12 year old and a 14 year old if you were to tell your parents who you fully acknowledge were amazing wonderful parents that were open you could have conversations with them had you told them there were some huge consequences that you didn't have the maturity to navigate that right that was just that was more than you could manage to think that this is going to ruin lives and you know maybe this person's going to go to jail or whatever it is you're holding on to that what would you tell somebody today from the perspective that you're at today that's in that situation? The perspective today is that is I would I, and I say this, you're not alone. You're not bad. You're not broken. You're not weak. These things unfortunately happen. And I have a belief that that anybody who does those things has had something of that nature done to them. We don't, we don't create these ideas on our own. We have to learn them somewhere. And so even as a young person, I, I felt a sense of, I kind of felt a sense of compassion, um, knowing this person a little bit, like their circumstances and, and having the idea that they must've been through worse than what they put me through. And for a long time, I, I felt weak in that. But now today I can, I have acceptance and I understand that I, I, I hesitate to say this for other people, but this is part of my healing. That happened for a purpose. I needed, I needed to understand. I don't say this to others. I don't, I don't, I don't tell them how to feel or how to reconcile their own pain, their own suffering. But for me, this is part of my healing process because I work with a, a, an 
great number of individuals who've been abused physically, psychologically, sexually. And I believe that I needed to have some experiences. I wish I could have gotten that experience some other way. I wish I didn't have to go through that. But somebody a long time ago said the phrase, turn your mess into a message. And I, I like the, I also like the phrase, turn your pain into a purpose or from your pain, create purpose. And I think I wouldn't have gotten it. I think I wouldn't have had the compassion or the understanding or the ability to connect with somebody else had I not gone through those things. I just wouldn't have noticed it. And so by no means would I say like, yeah, if I could do it all over again, would I want to go through that again? Absolutely not. No, no. But because I'm so passionate about the work that we do, I have to attribute it to that, to having been in a, a sense of hell, a state of hell, a state of powerlessness. Because so many of our people, adults and kids, are experiencing or have experienced those same things. And so this, the, the statements of you're not alone, um, there are others. It's okay to tell. It's okay. It's okay to talk about it. Um, this person or these people or these, these things happening aren't okay and they need help. And if we can get them the help, then maybe they have a chance at stopping that at ending the cycle at not hurting anyone else. If we don't do anything about it, that cycle usually continues. That cycle usually worsens, unfortunately. And so if we have an opportunity to get somebody the help, even though it's scary and it's humiliating, devastating, it wrecks families, um, we, we need to shift our culture to be okay with, with, with those levels of devastation that might be more public um, in, in, in our effort to getting away from the private devastation that festers and grows and snowballs, because I think we we are allowing um, this is this is a maybe strong blanket statement, but through through the tabooness of the topics of abuse and neglect and harm, because we're not comfortable with those things, we ostrich we go ostrich style. We stick our head in the sand. We pretend like it doesn't exist while all the while it's happening everywhere. Um, the statistics are overwhelming. They are devastating. I have four kids. It becomes completely, it becomes completely different in my mind and in my heart when I go from thinking about myself dealing with pain, being a victim, being hurt. And then when I start to think about if this were to happen to my child and I can't fathom that, I can't stomach that and I won't. And so we have to talk about it. We have to address it. I've worked a lot of, of my career in residential treatment and we, we, we just call them treatment centers and there's a, there's a treatment perspective. There's kind of a treatment track or a, a, 
modality of treating things after the, after the fact. And then there's this topic of prevention. And so two or three days, maybe a week into people's treatment, I would say to them, this isn't a treatment center for you anymore. This is a prevention center. We've got to figure out how to keep this from happening again so that you don't have to come back. And that concept, I think as a society, if we can start to start to fathom that, if we can start to look at it from that perspective, let's go prevent rather than wait until it's bad enough that somebody needs help. I mean, imagine the lives that we will change. Imagine, imagine the harmony that can exist in our families, that can exist in our schools, that can exist in, I mean, every, every area of our, of our society, if we would prevent it. And it's like you're talking about, Chris, which is so incredible is that, you know, this, these, this abuse and these experiences thrive on someone being in silence, right? Suffering in silence. And what you're, you know, suggesting is that we can do this as a community. And instead of looking at that person who, who did that act that was hurtful, you know, whether it's a sexual abuse or any kind of abuse who did that act to see them as a human being, like you've talked about, and to see them with a problem. They're not engaging in that behavior because they're a healthy human being. They're engaging in that behavior because they have wounds too, and they need help. And if we can stop you know, coming at it from a punitive point of view, which our society has done for a long, long time, and, and there's a lot of forces working, you know, working to improve that, but there's a lot of work to be done in that area. But if it can be we love you, we care about you, hey, there's some things we can do that will help you and will help everyone else too, then it doesn't become so shaming, right? And so hard, it becomes, you know, there's gonna be some consequences, but that's gonna be okay too, right? The consequences are gonna be okay. We're gonna do it together. So I love that approach and I love the way you're talking about that because it's exactly where we need to go one person at a time. You know, it feels painful going one person at a time. <laughs> yeah, it does. but. You know, I saw something the other day. Um, um, it was two ladders side by side. I think I saw it on Instagram. I reshared it. Um, it was two ladders side by side. And one of the ladders had like, I don't know, 20 rungs on the ladder. And it had somebody going up it. And the one on the right had like maybe four rungs. And, and the, the idea was that baby steps are more productive. And um, that one on the right... The feeling I got was um, kind of like addict mentality in a way that that we don't get we don't get that big of a whoa that's amazing from the baby step like I want it swift fast intense um, more right and I started thinking about it in in terms of now as a as a business owner um, as a as an employer um, as a father of four not just one, right? Like it's, it's, there's more to it. And I have to remind myself that it's all about those baby steps, those incremental, where are we going? Where are we heading? And that, that's got to encompass every part of my life, the recovery process, um, my, my own behavioral health. Um, if I'm there sitting in space with another human and connecting with them and creating an, or, or, um, sharing that space for them in their healing and, and trying to be a catalyst. If I'm not on point with my own stuff, how am I going to be a father? How am I going to be a husband? 
how am I going to be a, a beneficial therapist? And, you know, I think, I think if we could take off or, or if we could discard the expectation of being perfect, I think a lot of change would happen. I really do. And that's a, that's a whole other topic and conversation and a, and a, probably a rabbit hole, but, um, I think we have a lot of us that are out there um, putting on a facade when inside things aren't okay. And we just don't feel that. Gabor Mate, Dr. Gabor Mate said it. Um, he probably didn't invent this quote, but he says it the most eloquently and concisely for me. And it resonates in my mind, he says in one of his, in his talks, um, only when a person Only when a person senses some compassion will they allow themselves to see the truth. We have a movement in our society, the My Truth movement. And, and it, I used to love it because it was so validating for everybody in their own perspectives. And then it started to, I felt like we started to miss the point. Um, we started to treat everybody's perspective, even dis, even disagreeing perspectives as truth. And we wouldn't get into discussion or conversation or connection. Um, but this idea that if, that if I don't feel compassion, I won't allow myself to see reality. Um, that's so profound to me. And I, and I see that working in my own life. And I see that working in my, in my career, in my work with my people, that if I'm disconnected, if I'm if I'm distracted, we're not going very far. And I owe it to my people to show that, to be present, to be compassionate. Um, but again, there's, that puts a lot of pressure on us as individuals to take care of ourselves. You know? Well, it does. And, and what you just said is that we're human and we're imperfect and we're not always going to show up at our best in a 100% because we can't. I mean, there's just days where, you know, something's overwhelming. If if you, one of your kids, and I can tell that you love them with every part of your body, right? Every part of your soul, you love those kids. You're gonna protect them with your life if you have to. If something's going on with your kids, it's really tough to show up and be 100% present, right? For an example. Um, and so you have to allow that, you know, that give and take of, you know, and acknowledge today I am not 100% right here because I got something I'm worried about or whatever it is and, and allow that imperfection, right, to talk about it and speak it out. But that the goal is I'm going to take care of this thing so that it doesn't keep, you know, coming up and showing up in my space when I'm trying to do something else. Um, but I love, I love, love, love the the, the ideas and the um, the change, right, and and the way you question things. You're questioning like the truth movement. What's my truth, right? And, and, and the thing I love more than anything is going after truth, but truth comes from getting other, everybody else's perspectives and having that discussion of, well, what does that look like for you? And, and if it looks like that for you, does it have to look like that for me? You know, and, and talking about that. And so you can meet in the middle that just because this is the way you feel, doesn't mean it's the way I have to feel. And so I love the way you question everything because I think it's important. <laughs> vital, right? It's vital. I don't know that my parent. When I was younger, I don't know that my parents loved that questioning. And I joke, um, I, I'm I'm so pro agency. I'm so pro 
you get to you get to make your own choices as long as you're not hurting somebody else like all the way from the trivial pepsi or coke to to the more intense things about our values and and human rights and things that way you know again provided we're not hurting somebody or we're not being unsafe i very much support like do your thing um and i joke that that i want people to question i want people to wonder i want them to ask the whys until i'm around my kids and they start to go yeah but why or no they, they start to resist or rebel and i go I want everyone else to have this agency, but not you, um, just because it makes it difficult as a parent, right? I think that maybe hits home for all of us with kids. Um, but we can't, our principles can't be part-time. We've got to always practice the principles. And, and the truth is that we're not always going to be perfect with them. But if we can, if we can just use that terminology that we're always practicing our principles, right? Because there are those moments where I forget, you know, and I've got, a, I think I have a pretty good memory. I really do. That's one reason today that I'm like, I can't, I can't get high. I can't get drunk. I can't, I can't do any of these things because uh, my cognition, my memory, my thought process, like that's my, that's my career. And it's also my survival in so many ways. Um, so, so maybe now part of my sobriety is, is fear, um, uh, healthy fear. We'll call it that. But I think that's, there's a lot of information, a lot of information, and that's another, you know, another rabbit hole, another conversation. But the idea of of we're all works in progress. Um, our humanness is there, and we need to accept it. We need to acknowledge that it's there, and and not um, not mail it in like, well, sorry, I'm a human. Sorry that I hurt you again today. Sorry that I messed up again today. It's just who I am. You have to accept it. That's not what we're saying. That doesn't work. That's not a that's not a desire to change or improve. It's, you know, I've been really trying hard, and here here are the areas that I've improved. And today I struggled, or yesterday I I messed up, I fell off, or, or you know, I'm so sorry. And this is what I'm learning from it. I think when we can take accountability, but also acknowledge our imperfection, man, we've got a, a real, real nice recipe for success, in my opinion. Right. Well, yeah. and you you talked about that idea. I love this. What you said was you know, all of the good in the world, you know, going around and doing good, good, good and making a difference here and serving this person here and, 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 you know, showing up for your family does not justify the bad behaviors that you're engaging in, right? You can do all of that good and try and go, well, I do all this good, so it must be okay. It doesn't justify it. It, it doesn't make that okay, right? And, and that's a lack of integrity in your system and your system knows it, right? It's, it's, it's incongruent inside your body and so it creates this chaos inside. And so it's not okay, but I can't tell you how many people I've talked to and they're like, you see that pattern, right? You see this, this shadow over here that's just causing them all this grief and yet they do so much good, right? So much incredible things that they can do. Um, so I wanna ask you a question. I think this is an imperative question. Um, you talked about your kids and, and I think so many people are worried about our kids because the the research says that, you know, one in three are going to be abused in one way or another and maybe sexually abused for women and men. Maybe it's a little less. Maybe it's not. I don't know. That's questionable. But, you know, that's that's worrisome to to me as a mom and to you as you know, to us as parents. And how what is that conversation that you have with your kids 
that changes the dynamic that you experienced as a child? That it's okay to talk about feeling unsafe. Um, I think there was a generation where, again, just the taboo things, those topics, it was like, well, we just don't talk about it. It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen until this point. You know, sex doesn't happen until you're married. Um, we don't hurt each other. We don't punch each other. Um, and it was just like an all or nothing. Just don't do it. And um, I think I think our generation now, I think our society now is more open to talking about it. I'd like to think that. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, I think there are more avenues to talking about it if we're willing. Mm -hmm. uh, I think there's a lot, there are a lot of people who are in distress because they don't know how to talk about it with their kids. Um, but the, some of the conversations that we have uh, with our little ones are, are let's, let's use the, the issue of sexual abuse. You know, nobody's allowed to look at you there. Nobody's allowed to touch you there. That doesn't work, um, even if it's mom or dad you go tell the other parent because some of these, some of these stories that we hear, these devastations that we hear, it's, it's a trusted loved one that does it. And so it's so confusing that, you know, only, only mom or dad can wash you or touch you there or something like that, or the doctor, you know, in, the, in an exam, but then it's confusing because there's, there's healthy touch and then there's unhealthy touch. And, if I think about a child brain, our ability to understand and really comprehend, we've, we've taught them all or nothing. It's either no touch or, or yes, it's okay. We need to look deeper than that. We need to clarify. And there's a, there are actually a few books that are really good, I think, that talk about this, children's books. Um, for the longest time, I've wanted to start writing children's books that talk about some of these topics and how to talk about them. In fact, right behind me on my bookshelf, there's a book called The Elephant in the Room. And as an adult, I'm, I'm, I'm in my 30s. And as an adult, I still prefer picture books. And there's a lot of great content out there, a lot of great stuff that I like to read. I actually like audiobooks better because then I can then I can mow the lawn and listen or something like that. But <laughs> my brain, the way that it is structured, or the way I've conditioned it, or both, um, I need the illustration. I love analogies. I love parables. And for somebody to tell me a story while they're teaching me something, because then I'll comprehend it, I'll stay focused on it, and I'll remember it. So I, I've become that way as well in my work, in my own teaching. But to help our kids understand that they're feelings matter that even if as an adult i might be like well why are you crying like what are you crying for what's wrong what you know this isn't what's that phrase this isn't something to cry about well <laughs> that comes out of my mouth i don't like the term i don't like the phrase shame on me but if that comes out of my mouth shame on me why am i doing that i don't believe that it's just a figure of speech exactly you know and so if we can show up for our kids and help them truly feel safe in all areas, they're more likely to tell us if and when something bad 
happens, something unsafe happens. Um, there's a natural exploration. There's a natural uh, curiosity around sexuality. And I think it's important for us to teach our kids the difference between those things. Not that we endorse the curiosity and, and show and tell kinds of stuff, but that we understand that, that there is a difference between those things. There is a maliciousness to an adult or an older, older child or older teenager or something like that, um, hurting someone who's younger. Um, grooming is something that we talk about. Um, not the two youngest, they're not ready to, to comprehend that, but the two oldest can comprehend that. Mm -hmm. um, being able to, us as parents have a, have a, ooh, this might offend some people, it's important for us to have a maturity level that we can have those conversations, we can strike up and have those conversations with our kids or our grandkids, our nieces and nephews, um, the students. You know, I've got a sister who's a teacher and another sister who's studying to become a teacher. And there are, in my own observation, there are some parents who believe, who seem to believe, let me say it that way, seem to believe that public the public school system is responsible for raising their children mm. and that breaks my heart i can certainly understand the convenience of that but it breaks my heart for those kids it also breaks my heart for the parents because i do believe that somewhere down the road there will be some some regret um, but i think we have a responsibility no matter what hat we wear to, to support our children. Um, these are the, these are our future leaders. I know the cliches, the future leaders of our world, our future presidents, our future, you know, our future doctors and all of those things. But, but I don't take that, those roles and responsibilities lightly. It's really important for us, um, for us to take time for our kids to matter, for them to know that they matter. And that if they're concerned about something, if they wonder about something, that, that it's okay to ask, that we aren't gonna get mad at them, that if heaven forbid something bad happens in abuse, um, bullying, if something happens that it's not their fault, that they don't need to protect us in our hearts, that they don't need to hold that secret in. Um, you mentioned a second ago, Shelly, like our, like our body feels it when it's, when it's incongruent, you know, and that could be, you're kind of referencing our, our own actions and our own value system, but even those secrets, we're holding it in and it's a foreign object. It's a toxin. And so as we hold it in, it's doing damage. It's destroying the body. It's destroying the soul. Um, it's causing a lot of harm and havoc. And so we've got to learn how to safely and appropriately and, and maybe even diplomatically, like get those things out. Um, we are a lot of, there are a lot of uh, humans that I interact with. Um, I'm thinking of how to say this. Who, like my, like when I was 20 or 21, and she said to me, what happened? Something happened. What was it? We probably all know people in our world who are just like I was holding it in, pretending like everything was okay. Um, 
one of my one of my hopes is, or maybe maybe even a challenge is that we get to a point where we can be that person to someone else that says, "You can tell me, I'm safe, won't judge you, I won't, I won't reel back and be shocked, but you're safe to tell me, and you matter, old or young, you know, no matter who these individuals are, but that we can show up that way for somebody." So. Yeah, you come from a compassionate stance kind of in all of these circumstances, right? I mean, I think like you're saying as a parent, that's sometimes harder to do because it's stressful, but it's it's one of the most obvious places. You know, with a child, we should certainly be compassionate. I think one of the things that's interesting to see as kind of emotional intelligence grows in the world, that that's becoming more acceptable and more demanded as like an employer. Right. If you have an employee who's not performing, the metrics aren't there. You really need to start with the, hey, what happened? You know, what's going on? What's the, what's the personal story or whatever? Um, and it's powerful, I think, to go back. You know, even as as an individual who's abused, that you were inclined to feel that way about your abuser, right? And and you felt like it was a weakness, but it's not a weakness. Like the power in the assumption for you as a child your abuser had been abused right like that to me i think that's i think that's such a powerful thing to think that you know an 11 or 12 year old had thought um and obviously that's turned into other things you know the tell us about hilda hurt what's what's the background with hilda hurt and how does it work i i have worked in the prison system I've worked for county funded programs. I've worked in the exclusive treatment centers where the, the, where people who are very well off go. Um, I've seen, I've seen individuals with absolutely nothing and maybe less than nothing, if that's possible, um, who needed help. And I've seen individuals with millions and millions of dollars who needed help and being able to, to do work in both of those kind of both of those extremes as far as socioeconomic status and, and um, privilege or poverty. Um, I've noticed some some differences, a few differences, but more than anything, so many similarities. There were so many times where somebody had no resources, but needed help and was willing. And in both of these, the main treatment centers that I spent the majority of my career working in, um, a lot of scholarships were offered or funds were available. And something that was a, a prerequisite was to the, to the potential client, to the person who needed help was, what's your story? What's going on? What can you do? What are your resources? And, and let us make up the difference. Um, so it wasn't a freebie. It wasn't a free ride. Um, it wasn't a handout. It was, what are you willing to do? What do you need? What's the cost associated with this, whether it was a financial or some other thing, some other barrier and how can we, how can we remove those barriers? Um, so often I, I, I'm a social worker, um, 
when I went to grad school, I was trying to be a psychologist. I wanted to get a PhD in psychology and I applied for two years and, and didn't get into any of the schools and Arizona State had accepted me to their MSW program and uh, I turned it down. Um, I don't think I told them that. Well, I turned it down. I don't think I told them why. Um, and a year later, there were some personal things that were going on and, and uh, a year later I called them up and after not getting in again to, to the psychology programs, I said, could I, you know, you accepted me a year ago, could I still come? And they said, yeah. And uh, that's why I became a social worker. And, and one of the reasons I didn't want to do that because I had this idea that they just handed out food stamps for some strange reason. I don't know why that was my bias or my stigma. Um, because if I, if I were given the option to go back and be a psychologist, I wouldn't do it. Mm. I like, I love the study of the brain, but I couldn't do, and, and if a psychologist ever listens to this, they'll probably like, comment like, that's not what we do. We don't do that all day, uh, but I couldn't do testing. I don't like testing. I love to converse. I love to meet the person. I love, I'm way too social of a person to do, um, to have like a lot, a lot of clients that I only meet one or two times. I need, I like to, I like to see people at the beginning and, and then see them when they, when they fire me, when they say, I don't need to come here anymore. Um, you know, thanks for what you did. And uh, I got, I, I'm going to take it from here. You know, I love that. That's a huge, that's a huge, um, warm feeling for me, but so many times that bleeding heart, some people call this codependency, right? And some people call it compassion, but I would see where people needed help and they just didn't have the resources and nobody becomes a social worker or therapist to make millions and billions of dollars. It's just not, you don't choose this for the money. And I have a brother and, and my dad are both in finance and accounting and, and they work in money. And so when I have those kinds of questions, I, I ask them, hey, what should I do? They're the experts on that. I might've made more in my career doing that, but I don't think I'd be happy. Um, I want people to get the resources that they need. And so we opened this foundation. It's a nonprofit. We're pursuing 501c3 status so that we so that we can have those kinds of benefits to it for our donors. But um, literally 100% of anything that comes through to Heal the Hurt nonprofit goes to scholarships. Nobody's paid. There are no salaried employees. Everybody's a volunteer. Um, when we don't have scholarship funds, we just do it. We just write it off. We just we just tell the, tell the person like, you know, we're gonna give you the service and and, um, you know, essentially it's kind of the honor system, like do well with it, don't take advantage of it. Um, when we do have funds available right now, we just started um, a campaign. There's a, there's a person who's worked in the recovery field for quite some time who is in recovery, was in recovery and has lost it, um, is, is really struggling and is back in the throes of addiction. And they, they have incredibly limited resources and the resources that they do have are kind of um, uh, disqualifiers for, for most treatment centers here. Um, there are a lot of treatment centers and I might offend somebody too. There's a lot of treatment centers out there. I'm really picky. I know what good treatment is. Um, there, there is. There's a greater importance in my mind 
to figure out how to put somebody through the right treatment center for their personality, for their story, for their the emotions that they're dealing with, than finding the cheapest one. Um, but we have a we have relationships with a few treatment centers here locally, and some other other parts of the country um, that are willing to to do some scholarships as well. And so it's kind of a mutual partnership where if we're able to raise the funds for this this particular person to get back into residential treatment, um, the treatment center is willing to, to um, reduce their, their cost, reduce the expense uh, for them to go through. So those are, that's our mission. Um, somebody that needs help but can't do it, we wanna do it. We wanna be able to provide for them. Um, somebody said to me a long time ago, there's a difference between um, I need it, but I can't get it, and I need it, but I won't. And so we're very, uh, we have conversations about the circumstances. We require our scholarship recipients to write out their story, talk to us a little bit about their circumstances, um, why, kind of like, I guess it's an application process, um, that we know those funds are going to go to um, a good candidate, somebody that's serious about their recovery. Um, I was writing, I was writing a little paragraph yesterday and I was thinking about, I wish, I wish our recipients could, I wish we could share their stories because I, I am so privileged to be able to see that change and, and how, how other people's charity benefits people who are struggling and suffering. Um, but because of HIPAA laws and confidentiality, it's like our hands are tied. And so it's, sometimes I feel badly saying, uh, you know, give us this money because we want to we want to help people. But then I can't show you the product. I can't show you what we're doing with it. It, it, it feels sometimes it feels icky, actually. Um, but I think I think individuals who've been there, I think individuals who've seen somebody struggle and suffer and not be able to get the treatment. Um, get it. Um, but we want. Yeah. Heal the hurt. The, the The goal is to be something like, not in grandeur, but something like a Red Cross or um, Wounded Warrior or something. I probably shouldn't say names of other organizations, um, but an organization that just has the ability to put to give people the treatment that they need. And someday, our vision is that that. Um, the clinical work will be in-house, that Heal the Hurt will grow and, and be able to employ people to provide the treatment. And it would be more of a, a situation of people coming into our program, not just us sending people out and, and being kind of the, the financial liaison, I guess, um, but that we'd be able to provide that work. And that's something that we with Hobble Creek that we're growing, we're, we're creating and building and trying to be able to, to provide a variety of services to a variety of populations. But um, that's, that's somewhere down the road to, to be able to, to do those services in-house. And so, so yeah, essentially everything that, that comes in, every donation, and we sell, like we'll sell some t-shirts or we'll put you know, some memorabilia, what we've done some giveaways, um, where I just, just through our private practice, um, 
I did like a March Madness tournament bracket challenge. And so I just donated a hundred dollars and just asked people like, if you'll, if you'll buy in for $1, um, you know, the winner gets a hundred, hundred dollars of mine. And so it doesn't come from our, the donation fund. It doesn't come from any of that stuff. It's, it's just something that we, we want to generate some excitement for. Um, I also think like just talking about it makes us feel good. It helps us to feel compassion for other people. I don't know the last, I really don't know the last time that I traveled, um, a reasonable distance without seeing somebody on the side of the road asking for help. Um, and reasonable by reasonable distance, I mean like 10 or more miles. Um, I have, I'm really blessed to have a, like a four mile commute uh, between home and my office right now. So anytime I'm traveling somewhere other than between work and home, I'm seeing somebody struggling and I can't even imagine the number of people who struggle in silence. So we want to reach out to those people. So, the other part is, as I talk about this, is, is simultaneously do we ask people to consider us when they when they think about donating, when they think about okay, we've got X number of of you know things for charity, X number of, of funds or whatever um, to consider us, but also those who might listen to this, are you struggling? Do you have a loved one who needs help? Please reach out to me. Um, we're we're not. We're not just taking and taking and taking. We we do some of these conversations and have some of these chats because we want to raise awareness that there are resources available. Because so often that's one of those big barriers that just that just communicates in the mind like, oh, I can't even do it because I don't have insurance. Or I can't do it because um, I've already asked my parents for money or I've always already asked my clergy or, you know, that's just a, an egregious amount of money. Just can't do it. Well, let's let's figure it out. Let's get creative, and and let me give an example. Um, right now, we're trying to raise ten thousand to put this person through a quality residential treatment, and let's say we come up with two thousand. Maybe clergy can come up with two thousand. Maybe family could come up with another two thousand, and and before we know it, we're really really close to that goal. It doesn't have to be this lofty. Here's the amount, and here's where we've got to get it. Part of a social worker's responsibility is bringing those resources together and getting really creative. And part of my own healing has is has been learning how to give myself some of those highs in a natural way. And I get one of those from seeing somebody go from that hellish sorrow and despair to having a new lease on life, so to speak, or being able to get creative when there's a when there's a little dilemma. Like we're X number of dollars short. Where is it going to come from? Rather than giving up and throwing our hands in the air saying, let's talk about it. Let's figure this out. What can we do? Um, so yeah, the mission, the mission is just to, to get people the care that they need, whether they can afford it or not. Um, the quality care. Yeah. Chris, I'm imagining, I mean, you've done just a great segue into, you know, how does somebody give? How do they connect with you? How do they connect with Heal the Heart? Um, talk about that for a second so that they know how to connect with you. We have a really generic website right now. It's healthehurt.org. Um, we, on that, there's a, um, let, me, let me qualify this for a second. I see a lot of, um, uh, without saying the names of these other, these other things, 
um, where you can go donate to a cause, but they take 10% or they take 20%. Um, some of the organizations that maybe the donation, the donation goes to fund their building or it goes to fund their overhead or their salaries of their CEOs. And um, my cynicism starting to come out here for a second. I apologize. Um, so we, we opened a Venmo and uh, Venmo doesn't charge anything for those donations. It doesn't skim anything off the top. And so I felt really good about that, that, that somebody's donation went directly, went completely entirely to this cause. Um, on, on our website now, I think it gave us the opportunity to open a, to do a PayPal as well. So on our website, you can find our Venmo, you can find our PayPal. We also invite people. Um, we do have some single parents. We do have some individuals who get evicted from their, their, their home residence. And then, then they, they find new housing and they need things like couches or maybe clothing, especially winter coats and things like that. We don't want to turn into Desiree Industries or Savers or something like that, but there are those moments where somebody says, hey, I've got this. I was going to run it down to the to the um, thrift store to donate it. You know, do you have anybody that could use it? And sometimes we say no, and sometimes we go, you know what? That's actually just visited with somebody who needs exactly that. Let's figure this out. Um, we, we want to just connect people with the resources that they need, but I've even said to people, you know, maybe, you know, if you've got a couple of bucks, that's great. If you don't, but you know somebody who does, could you share the message? You know, just spread spread the word of what we're trying to do. In the future, um, we will be doing this more consistently. COVID kind of wrecked a lot of stuff for us, didn't it? Oh, my um, heavens, yes. But we've been we've been starting to plan some workshops, some psychoeducation type things, some some groups on the topics of relationship issues and communication, um, trauma support groups, um, teen and child themed things, parent uh, uh, issues that fathers deal with, issues that mothers deal with, step parents or blended family dynamics. And so we've got a, we've got a curriculum that's in a rough draft form where we'll be providing these in the community. And those, a lot of those will be free, but with a, um, uh, kind of a, an optional donation for somebody to come attend. But these are some of those things where we feel like as a, as clinicians or as, as people who've maybe been there, I feel a great responsibility to share that with the community. Again, whether you can pay for it or not, if you can and you can donate, then that's great. That's amazing. But we want to, we want to create a normalcy of, of going and getting, accessing those resources acknowledging like I need some help. I need some support. We're going to go to this group. We're going to go learn. Hey kids, you know, you're on your, you know, here's a pizza for tonight. Um, mom and I are going to learn how to be better parents for you. And the kids are just going, oh, my parents aren't perfect. Like they're still learning. Like talk about getting your mind blown that your parents like aren't know-it-alls. Right. <laughs> um, and I think just, just setting that trend of we're still learning, we're still figuring it out. I've been doing this work for a long time and, and, and some people, I'm a supervisor and I'm an employer and I'm a director and those things. I'm a patient too. I'm still figuring it out. Mm -hmm. I'm still learning. Um, I don't think, I don't think we understand what the word expert means. I think we put that, that term on a pedestal. I think we just expect that it's perfect. 
that it's all knowing and it just isn't a real thing. So um, something else that we're trying to do are some retreats and some experiences where somebody may not be able to go to residential treatment. Maybe they don't need, meet the criteria for residential treatment, but they need something more than group therapy or individual therapy. And so we're, we're in the process of planning some retreats, some getaways where just a couple of days um, where again, it's themed maybe a men's group and we get away and kind of talk about men's things. We've got some individuals on our team that will be leading the female only segments and retreats and focusing on those things. Um, and one of the barriers that comes from that is, well, what do I do with my kids? Or I can't leave my family, I can't leave my work is us figuring out how to make it reasonable for somebody to get away for two or three days to work on themselves, to better themselves, so that they can then return to whatever those endeavors are and be more efficient and effective in those roles. Um, so to just go back, yeah, our website, healthehurt.org, um, or on Instagram, we're, we're revamping our, our Facebook, but I think our best bet is for people to to just jump on our website um, again, healthehurt.org. So that's cool. incredible, incredible work that you're doing, Chris. I just applaud that. And matter of fact, I, I might have to connect with you and see how I can be a part of that because it sounds uh, it sounds like the exact movement we're talking about. There needs to be change. So thanks so much for being willing to share that and share share what you're doing, your vision of that, where it's going, and. Um, and definitely there's a huge number of people that you are have been instrumental. You and your team have been instrumental in helping. And so kudos for that as well. And um, I hope you'd be willing to maybe jump on the show again sometime and, you know, we'll do an update and see where things are at in a, in a, in a bit. Absolutely. I'd be honored. That'd be great. Appreciate you guys so much. Thank you for, thank you for inviting me on and, and spending time with me. This is very beneficial for me as a, as uh, in all those roles that I that I uh, play and all the hats that I wear, like I was mentioning before. So appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for being here. Appreciate your big heart.